I thought I would share with you two cases, and I share these cases because of their uniqueness. I think that in seeing these cases, because they're both rare, uh, sometimes when the rare stuff comes along, we don't spot it right off the bat because we're usually looking for horses instead of zebras. But I do believe that there's a time when it's time to look for zebras instead of horses, as they say. And so when you hear certain red flags in a case history or you see certain things, you start to say to yourself, this is one of those times I probably should be looking for zebras instead of horses. So this first case is a case of frozen shoulder. And the patient came reporting that she had, had, she had frozen shoulder. She had just had surgery on the frozen shoulder and then wanted to show me how when she elevated it, she could get about 20 degrees of movement is about all she could get. It really wasn't very much at all. And she told me that she was scheduled to go to physical therapy where they were going to be working to break up the scar tissue because they told her that they had concluded that it was scar tissue that was keeping her from raising her shoulder and being able to elevate it. And so um, right off the bat, just from those things, I was thinking, okay, whatever this is, it's somewhat atypical. Uh, she said she had seen a chiropractor before. They weren't able to do much with it. And so that led me into that atypical arena of maybe this is a zebra and not a horse. And so the very first thought I had is that I want to check her shoulder blade. I want to check the, uh, the GH joint. And I want to check the first rib on that same side. Right? Because that, that axis of those three things interacts so tightly that any one of them can throw the others off. And so uh, when, I ch when I evaluated her, I could see that the shoulder blade was off. And so we started there. She had a very swollen bursa underneath the shoulder blade and the shoulder blade had almost no movement. Um, hopefully you know how to adjust a shoulder blade, but in case you don't, let me tell you, because I know there are people who may not have ever learned that anywhere. So the way that I do it, uh, is in this case, I, she's laying prone, so she's face down, and I take the arm, this was, it was her left shoulder, so I take the left hand, and as she's laying prone, I bring it up above her head, so it, it, from her body position, it would be in a superior position. So she's laying face down, and the arm, and the hand is up over the head. In that position, the muscles that control the shoulder blade become deactivated and I know um, there's a there's a bodybuilding trick actually that there's a certain way in which when you're working arms you can differentiate between the bicep and the brachialis and it has to do with the fact that the bicep is a two joint muscle and the brachialis is a one joint muscle and so when you're trying to build the muscle when you want to build the brachialis which brachialis provides more bulk to your arm than the bicep does so when you want to build a brachialis, you can do that by isolating the brachialis and basically taking the bicep out of the equation. So how do you do that? You do that by raising the elbow above the shoulders. When the elbow is elevated above the shoulders, there's so much slack in the bicep, it cannot create a contraction. And so the way to do this is you sit on a, a lat pull-down machine, you grip the bar with your hands really close together in a seated position, you grip the bar, and you then proceed to, curl, to push down so that you're doing a curl with your elbows elevated above your shoulder and you're pushing the bar towards your upper back and you're driving it down. You're not, you won't be very strong in this position, 
but if you've never tried that, you can even without weight you can do it, and you can feel how the bi- how the uh, the brachialis in the middle really tightens up, and your bicep is powerless. And so there is definitely a trick, uh, as bodybuilders know it. That's how I, that's who I learned it from. There's definitely a trick to deactivating certain muscles based on position, and it has a lot to do with whether they're two joint muscles or one joint muscles. So, in this position, as you elevate the arm. It deactivates some of the muscles with the shoulder blade, which then allows you to slide the, the shoulder blade. And the way you want to imagine this is that the shoulder blade is sitting on top of a swollen bursa. And so I always describe it as skipping rocks on a lake. That is the direct, if you think of the bursa as being the lake, you're going to skip that bone going from lateral to medial across, across the pond. <laughs> and you're just going to skip it across there and move it in. And so, when the patient's in the prone position, you make your contact up by the, um, the spine of the scapula. It makes a great little lever, whether you have to go up or go down. And you push ever so slightly down into the patient. Just a little bit, we'll get a little bit of squeeze. You don't, if you go too far, you block yourself. So it's just a little bit of squeeze and then set it across towards the medial. And um, you will definitely, there, you definitely get a cavitation. It's not like a regular joint but you'll definitely feel the, the pop or click or you'll feel something happen. You can feel it shift. And sometimes it shifts with no noise, just like any joint. Sometimes it shifts with no noise. Sometimes it shifts with a lot of noise uh, and everything you can imagine in between. And so that sets the shoulder blade across. And that's what I did to start this one. So that set it across. Then um, uh, that made a big difference for her. Then once that's set across, the shoulder blade, when it's lateral, will actually lock up the thoracic, especially the upper thoracics, so that they become almost impossible to adjust. So if you've had a patient where their thoracics seem hyperkyphotic or they seem so rigid that they can hardly take you pushing into it or they'll even tell you, I don't like having that area adjusted because it hurts, that, those are all good clues that they may have a shoulder blade that's holding it out of position. And once you get that shoulder blade repositioned, those vertebrae will start to move the way you want them to and you can fix them then. So that's what I did on her second. And then, I ha- and then I sat her up again, and I started checking out the GH joint. And as I palpated it and just moved it around, I quickly determined that hers was sitting um, in a unique position. And so when it comes to the misalignments or the listings for the GH joint, uh, typically, most of the time, it goes anterior and inferior, or an AIGH. Sometimes it will go posterior and superior. However, in my little secret book of Gonstead that I had was the first time I ever heard about a PI listing and it said right in the notes that a PI listing will cause frozen shoulder. So it's important to understand that the PI listing almost always causes frozen shoulder. However, not every case of frozen shoulder is a PI listing. So be sure to draw that distinction. Just because they have a frozen shoulder doesn't mean they have a PI, but if they have a PI, they'll almost always have a frozen shoulder. And so, um, that was the uniqueness of this case was it was that PI and once I saw the PI I thought this is the thing that could change everything the only question is whether or not it'll move well the reality was it moved easier than any PI I've ever adjusted and I will tell you I've adjusted a PI shoulder probably I would say maybe a half dozen times in my career so it's not a ton of times but when you find them you find them and they're there so I set that PI and immediately after it moved, she knew it was better. She said, it's better. And I said, go ahead and raise your arm and show me. And she brought the, her left arm up and it matched her right arm 100%. And she said, I've had this frozen shoulder for over a year. 
I've already had surgery, and I haven't lifted my arm like that in over a year. I haven't been able to do that. So it's a profound adjustment. It makes a big deal, but I, I realized in thinking about it that the PI shoulder listing might be unique to some people, that maybe some people haven't heard of that listing or not familiar with it. And so to find the PI, you have to be pretty good with palpation. And so what I do is just motion the shoulder and you feel for, as you move the arm back, does the, does the head of the humerus, does it drift forward easily? And in most cases, since the AI is most common when you do this, usually you'll find that the head comes forward and almost comes forward anterior too much. And then when you go to take it backwards, it just doesn't go back at all. That is a typical AI, and that's the majority of what you see when you look at a shoulder. Hers was not confusing at all. When, when I moved it back and forth, her, her head of her humerus dropped way back, but it would not come forward past neutral. So I knew it was posterior, uh, and I could, I could just feel that it was inferior, so I knew she had a PI. So that, um, that listing can make a big difference if you know how to find it, and you know what you're looking for and then you can adjust it and i'll tell you with the pi the way that i adjusted it is i know a lot of people do the one where you kind of wind it up and you've got their arm bent in front of you and you grab them by the elbow and you set it up like because that's a great move for the ai because you're bringing it from anterior to posterior and you and one of the keys with that to remember is that as you're bringing it up there's a little bit of an outward torque that the torque is actually the magic on that one if you set your shoulders straight up and you don't give any torque that could be the problem with why they either don't go or people say they're painful or something less than ideal happens. You gotta throw in that little bit of external torque and with a little practice you can get it figured out to, to do just the right amount. But getting back to the PI, it doesn't set that way so well because it's PI and so I didn't want to set it further posterior. So what I did in her case is I just elevated it straight out to her side like she was doing a, a lateral raise um, like in weightlifting. So I brought it straight out to her side and I actually put her elbow in my armpit and wrapped my arm around so that I was supporting the weight of her arm. And then I put both hands underneath the head of the humerus in her armpit. And I kind of moved it around until I felt her relax it and let me take control. And as soon as she did, I set it anterior and superior in a vector that was both anterior and superior and set it up that way. And it went bonk and we both felt it go in. Uh, I, like, like I said, when I started, it was the easiest PI I've ever adjusted, by far. I, I had, the first PI I ever adjusted in my life um, was a long time ago. Um, I'm gonna say probably around 2002 or three. <laughs> um, and that one was so tough that it took me almost 10 minutes just to weasel my arm between the patient's arm and side because it was so frozen she couldn't even get her elbow off of her rib cage and so I had to just hold it and just like slowly work my arm in there to get it in between because it was that stuck and it took adjusting it I think three times to get it 100% the first one made a big difference but it took three to get it 100% so they come in different forms when they're really frozen they're really frozen they can be kind of tough to get in on but if you if you get in there and you and you work them uh, and you don't have to be really aggressive with them either. You can be patient because if you if it's a PI and you start setting in an AS direction and you're not aggressive with it, but you just kind of start setting it that way, even if you don't get it done, it'll start loosening up. And each time it loosens up, it, you'll be able to do a little more with it and it won't be long before you get to where you can, you actually can set it where it needs to go. So you don't have to be really aggressive. You don't have to try to do it in one shot. Sometimes that happens, but it's not a requirement. You don't have to be, to be that aggressive with it. So 
Um, if you haven't heard of the PI, hopefully that helps you to understand that the shoulder can be a little more complicated than just the AI and the PS. So the second case is one that I'm going to be a little coy, more coy with. Uh, I don't want to tell you right up front what it was, <laughs> so uh, we'll see if you can figure it out from some of the clues that I give you. Uh, so I, there's this patient, and uh, when he came in, he was in obvious pain. He was having trouble walking. He was having trouble sitting. He was having trouble standing up. My first instinct was I thought, well, this looks like an L5. I've seen many, many L5s. This looks like an L5. Uh, so I'll just tell you off the bat, it was not L5. <laughs> That's not what it was. So once I got to the chance to evaluate him and, and check him out, I started palpating and quickly realized it was not an L5. In fact, I tried to provoke L5 to see if I could convince myself it was L5 and everything kept telling me this is not L5. So it became clear it was in his pelvis, but his presentation was a little unusual for a pelvis. So I thought, okay, well, what's going on here? Um, as I evaluated it, I realized that his his sacrum was um, PL on the left, but, um, but it was hard as a rock. And while it wasn't moving, it also wasn't giving him any tenderness, which seemed weird because in pal on palpation, my palpation said, this should be sore, and he said it wasn't. So I go out to the ilium, and the ilium is, uh, it's very EX. And yet his presentation didn't really match an EX ilium, but I thought, well, they don't know the rule book. It doesn't have to match an EX ilium. It could be something a little bit different than that. So initially I thought um, that maybe it's just a straight EX ilium. And so I adjusted the EX ilium because that's really what it seemed to be. It was a straight EX ilium and that was predominant. So I set the EX ilium and when he came up, he reported that he was no different. It was exactly the same. And I thought, huh, that's unusual. Um, it was one of those rare times where I thought I'm actually a little bit stumped here. I'm not really sure where to go with next because I'm running out of joints and I'm sure it's that joint. I don't know why it's not liking that. So I did what you do. I went back to the drawing board and I started over again. So I went through everything. Um, still seemed as though he had an EX ilium, but I knew it was mostly because of the swelling in the joint. And so that's what hadn't changed much. And so I started palpating again around around the around the SI joint as I got towards the bottom I felt something like a, the tiniest little something and so I went to the top of the joint and I said is it tender up here at all no it's not tender up here at all I went to the bottom and I said is it tender down there and he's like not really and then I went in on that P and he's like oh that is And I thought okay so it's not really a heavy part of his listing and it's not really like his listings EX it's not a heavy part of his listing but he's got this little thing down here on the bottom and I think the only way I'm gonna be able to get rid of it is by adjusting an AS ilium on the left and so that's what I did I I put him on his side and I adjusted the AS component and it set in nicely and so and then when he came up he was noticeably better and I started thinking about that because I thought, okay, the ASEX ilium is not real common. And so, of course, we have the four different listings for the pelvis, but they don't occur in the same proportions, meaning 
Um, certain listings are far more common than others, or maybe it'd be better to say certain listings are far less common than others. And so I think it's important to think about the fact that just knowing what we know from the Gostead listing system, knowing that, that a PI and an EX are both going to affect the hip or the leg length the same way that, that to, as each other, and the AS and the IN affect each other. And so when you look at it from a biomechanics perspective, the way the bone moves, ASIN is biomechanically correct and PIEX is biomechanically correct. So if it goes PI, it naturally wants to go EX. And if it goes AS, it naturally wants to go IN. So you have two listings that, in my concept of thinking, violate biomechanics. Because if you've got an ASEX or a PIIN, you've got a misalignment where the body wants to compensate, immediately wants to compensate. So let's take the ASEX, since that's the one we're talking about. You take the EX component and the brain says, well, I want to pull it inward, but as it pulls it inward and goes from EX to IN, it's also driving it more anterior superior, which makes that component worse. And the brain goes, oh no, I don't want to do that. Well, let me see if I can fix this AS part. So it tries to pull the ilium down using muscles and tries to compensate for the AS part by going PI. But as it goes PI, it's now being forced EX, makes that component worse. So the brain will try this a few times and then realizes that it cannot compensate for one element without making the other element worse. And so a lot of times your ASEX and your PIIN, they show up in more pain than some of the other listings simply because the body is unable to compensate. And the other tricky thing about it is that when, they, when the body does try to compensate, they may also come in with a lot of L5 pain. Uh, that's one that I've seen before, where they're really cute L5 and it can easily mislead you especially if you're new, into thinking that the L5 is the cause of the problem. Because here they've got this SI joint pain, their L5 is on fire, and you're thinking, yeah, it's probably just that nerve, the L5 nerve coming off L5 and going by the SI joint, so I need to do L5. And it can lead you right into that trap, all because it's the L5 compensating for the ilium. When the ilium's the problem, and the reason the ilium's such a problem is because it's violating normal biomechanics to produce either an ASEX or a PIIN. And so those two listings, the ASEX and the PIN, are two that need to be paid special attention to because they're not super frequent. Uh, you're not going to see them all the time. And that's why you have to be a little more on your guard. And so again, this is a case of zebras over horses. And so I remember when I was in school, they always said, think horses, not zebras. The problem is there's a time and a place to think zebras. If you're on the in the savannah in Africa, you should be thinking zebras, not horses. Like there's a time and a place for that. And so it seems like I, I know that the intention was good with them saying that, but there's also an element of those zebras are out there. Don't miss them when they show up. And so those two listings are two zebras that can exist. And so I bring this up because I hope that if there's somebody out there who's got a patient and they're frustrated with them and they can't figure out what's going on and they're, and they're just struggling that maybe in these two stories you might hear something that makes you go, oh, maybe that's what so-and-so has and maybe I can help them if I take it from this approach. And so that's why I wanted to share those because we cover the horses, so to speak, all the time. But a lot of times the zebras get set to the side. They don't get discussed as much. And if you're new, if you are somebody who wants to do Gonstead but haven't done a lot of seminars or don't have a mentor or don't have somebody around you who can help with you, 
you may not know some of these tricks. You may not know some of these things. And so you could have a, a patient where you'd be very frustrated thinking, well, I am the one who needs to help them. I'm the only one who can help them, but I can't figure out what's wrong with them. Um, I want to cover some, some zebras so that hopefully it helps you to figure them out. I know when I was a student or a young doctor and I would go to seminars, I would often hear them talk about something in particular and I would think of a particular patient of mine that I had particularly struggled to get better and I would go, oh, that's the key to that patient. That's what I need to do. Um, and so the, the real trick is not always knowing what information we need to be putting out there because people don't know it. And so um, those two cases, it just kind of occurred to me that those are good examples of something that's a little bit different. Um, and if you haven't, if you've heard it before, great. And if you haven't, then hopefully that helps you to, to process it in your mind, figure it out, and maybe even help one of your patients that you might have struggled with for a little while.